welcome to Planet Poetry. I'm Robin Houghton. And I'm Peter Kenny. In this episode, Robin interviews Helen Ivory about her 2019 collection, The Anatomical Venus. Because of the, the title of the book, we've been Googling images that uh, date back to Victorian times of anatomical venuses, and they're kind of weirdly disturbing and dreamlike of sort of women with very serene-looking faces with their, their internal organs on full show. Yeah, quite gruesome, really. And in fact, Helen tells us a bit more about, about it. But it, they struck me, these images, as being almost surreal almost like a kind of a, a Dali painting might might be. You look at it and think, did this come from some the depths of someone's imagination or subconscious? But for the women yeah. of the time, of course, the experience was, was very real. About the objectification of women, that you have all the sort of gentlemen doctors leaning over yeah, and yeah. fiddling around with their, yeah. their guts and so on. Enough of us talking about these things. Uh, let's hear what Helen Ivory had to say to Robin. visual artist. She edits the webzine Ink, Sweat and Tears and is a lecturer for the UEA National Centre for Writing online creative writing programme. She's also published five collections with Blood Axe Books, The Double Life of Clocks, 2002, The Dog in the Sky, 2006, The Breakfast Machine, 2010, Waiting for Bluebeard, 2013 and The Anatomical Venus, 2019. A book of collage mixed-media poems, Hear What the Moon Told Me, was published by KFS in 2017, and a chapbook, Maps of the Abandoned City, by Servision in 2019. Helen has received an Eric Gregory Award from the Society of Authors and was awarded Arts Council funding and an Authors Award from the Society of Authors to work on The Anatomical Venus. She lives in Norwich. So Helen Ivory, welcome to Planet Poetry. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thanks for asking me. Sorry that I've dragged you indoors on a lovely sunny day, as it is right now, but to talk poetry and stuff. (laughs) The most recent book, The Anatomical Venus, and it's got this really frightening cover to it, hasn't it? This kind of, a kind of fetish item, half doll, half angel, half bird wing, half kind of dried flower. There's some shells in there. Is that is that a pretty good setting of the scene for the, the themes of this book, would you say? Yes, absolutely. I mean, this, um, I'd say I made the, um, the artwork for the cover and it grew out of the whole body of work, really. What I wanted to get in is a kind of poppity feel. <laughs> <laughs> if you go to the, um, the Witchcraft Museum in Boscastle, you will see quite a lot of poppets there made up of various bits and pieces so I, w- I wanted that kind of feel I also wanted to get elements in so um, she's winged so there's the air and there's there's shells so there's a sea uh-huh. so there's everything uh-huh. really yeah she's she's so, she's some kind of poppets goddess I love that word so so poppet well, is that a technical term oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> you have I mean people usually associate poppets with voodoo putting pins and you know various bits and pieces in but during lockdown um I, I make needle felt sculptures and I got into making well first of all I made a poppet for myself to sit on a fox but that's another story <laughs> and then quite a lot of other people wanted poppets they're kind of the, the spirit of hope this book is is about women and what it is to be female and through history mainly and there's this focus on attitudes towards women, treatment of women, physical and mental health. There's some pretty shocking and quite strange things that go on that have gone on. Is that a fair, a fair description of where you're coming from? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, definitely. I mean, and once you start reading these texts, such as the Malleus Malficarum, the Witch's Hammer and all kinds of things. I mean, first of all, I started with reading um, The Female Malady by Elaine Shellwater. Then um, I started then looking at more primary sources. And once you start reading into the way that women have been talked about and portrayed and represented, 
usually by men because men have traditionally always had the conch so to speak you know that they've they've always been you know because women weren't allowed to do things like anything really pretty much until quite recently you know even being in control of their own bodies the reason that I started on this particular train was that the book follows um, Waiting for Bluebeard which was about it's an autobiographical book about uh, my childhood and then living in an abusive relationship so how did I end up being the ch- the woman li- living in Bluebeard's house basically and um, Bluebeard is traditionally this kind of wife murderer yeah. of the fairy tale so there's, there's all manner of ways that you can be murdered without physically dying I hung all of that on you know the Bluebeard's kind of archetype I guess and then so I was doing readings from the Bluebeard book there were quite a lot of women that came up to me afterwards and I heard from lots of people who had lived with a Bluebeard you know or been made to feel other and strange and you know you're not like us i.e men what's wrong with you so then I yeah then so I got into reading The Female Malady by um, Lane Showwaters which is about hysteria and you know history of hysteria and and then, then I just kind of, yeah, I went off into all these fantastic and terrifying rabbit holes, really. And the, the more you read, the more agog you are. Yes. Well, that's true of this book as well, I think. The Cabinet of Curiosities stories through to these personal histories of women in asylums and, and right through to the present day. Mm. Is there something you'd like to read that's perhaps a good starter? Sure. Thank you. I'll read the poem, which is the first in the book. Because, I don't know, for me, it sums quite a lot of stuff off. Right, so that there are things in it. The title comes from the Bible, Thou shalt not suffer a sorceress to live. Some of the words or phrases or some of the incidents were, were things that were marked as things that people said during the Essex witch trials. About, I mean, the, the people that were being accused of being witches weren't all women, but tended to be mainly women. And so in the poem, there are things like the imps, which are suspicious animals, <laughs> the women that live on their own, you know, cats, goats, whatever, whatever, whatever comes to hand. So, so they're imps. And, and the idea of the, of the bad mother, so the witch would be suckling her imps. Um, so there's something kind of dark and dodgy going on there. And that so that yeah they have the witch's pap so that's in there and also in here there's a lot in here isn't there yeah. um, also in here there's the wandering womb as well so the womb was considered a, an animal within an animal um, you know in olden days medicine if there was anything wrong with the woman if something you know malfunctioned about her it's because her womb is in the wrong place so you had to tempt it back using nice you know herbs to just draw it back where it should be. This is, thou shalt not suffer a sorceress to live. For her neighbour's sickness was more than merely unnatural, for he sang perfectly without moving his lips. For she is intemperate in her desires and pilfers apples from the orchard, for she hitches her skirts to clamber the fence. For her womb is a wandering beast, for she is husbandless and at candle time, brazenly trades with the devil for she spoke razors to her brother who has looked upon her witch's pap and the odious suckling imp for the corn is foul teeth for the horse is bedlam in its stable for the black cow and the white cow are dead so often these people who are accused of being witches if anything went wrong in the village then it was their fault and interesting, you said before about this idea of women being bad mothers and, and just bad mm. at what they're supposed to be good at. And in this poem, we've got the, the accusation of her being husbandless and the odious suckling imp. Yeah. This idea of um, habits, bad habits, comes throughout the book. I've noticed that mm. word appears in many of the poems. A woman not being neat and orderly. Those words come up a lot as well. And I guess they probably came up in your research. Yeah, Yeah, they're they're the phrases that would appear in the records for the St Andrew's Asylum, the records that I looked at from, I don't know, 
from when they were legible, really. Because when you look at primary sources, handwriting used to be massively curly. Oh, right. So then I started looking at kind of 1800s, 1900s, and, and these are the things that were being said about the women. Yeah, these things, her habits were not cleanly. And those records and the, the words that people used to use to talk about people, it helped me, I don't know, enrich my language and make it feel authentic you kind of took on a lot of the vocabulary and it, and that's that's part of the mm-hmm. the atmosphere that you've woven throughout I think certain words you know I'd find the next poem would include a certain keyword that had been in the previous poem so the imp follows through we've got the prickers are here oh, and yes. then the next poem and pricking shortly found her the witch's mark I'm really interested in how you order poems or put them together in a in a full collection is that something that the poems suggest and you kind of put them all out on the floor and shuffle them around until they look good or is it is it more of a a design do you think from the beginning like this is my this is my kind of thread a bit like writing a novel here's my kind of plot line something's missing here something needs to go in here I I was conscious of that there were things I needed to write about as I was reading if I read something and, and one quote from it seemed to sum up everything that I've read, then that would often be, um, I would include that, you know, under the title. So that, that would be a good thing to hang the poem from. I think in so far as threads are concerned and, you know, picking up words, I mean, the, the word pricking is something that they used to do. If you go to the Museum of Witchcraft, you, you will be able to see needles that they used to use if there was a part on your body I don't know a mole that looked a bit dodgy if you pricked it with a needle and it didn't hurt then that was a witch's mark I think that was the logic to it Hmm. so you know that was an actual thing and then watchers were people that would stay with the accused all night just to see if their familiars would appear at night so yeah I think if you do all of this research and immerse yourself and then the things will just emerge and you know Mm. Mm. in the book there are wonderkammer poems kind of threaded through and that was I suppose that was a structural idea you know I I quite like the theme of the wonderkammer which is the cabinet of curiosities the precursor to the the museum where lots of bits and pieces are things that wouldn't possibly exist in, in the natural world next to each other and you bring them all together. I think everyone has their own wonder camera in their house actually. You know, mine's, <laughs> mine's my desk. I've got all kinds of random things. But, you know, they're all kind, you know, people have them on their, you know, their fridges or their yes, things that yes. matter or appeal to them somehow and some sometimes the thing can bring back a whole memory. That's, I think that's a, a generous way of describing a, a cabinet of curiosities, I think. I always think of them as sort of little mini freak shows. You know, I think <laughs> there's, a, there's a museum in Brighton, the Booth Museum. Uh-huh. I haven't stepped inside for years because it's too frightening. Oh, wow. But I must go there. <laughs> you must. It's full of, you know, stuffed creatures. And, and there you've got the two-headed sheep oh, and all yeah. kinds of weird and wonderful yeah. and not so wonderful stuff. And the whole building is this sort of real Victorian repository of darkness and weirdness that sounds amazing i'd love to go <laughs> and the thing about these wonder cameras they were made by men weren't they on the whole yeah they were men used to travel well men had wonder cameras women had dolls houses ah is that right yeah you know when you go to stately homes and you you often it would have yes. a doll's house the um a record of the entire house that was often for the women because they they could have control over their little house there. Not over the big one, but, but over the little one. So they can play, you know, on, on a miniature scale of being in control. That's interesting because you've got the Wonderkammer poems and you do have some Doll's House poems as well, don't you, towards the end? Oh, I do, yeah. I think we need to hear one of the Wonderkammer poems now. Okay. I'm going to read Wonderkammer with Ophelia and Hospital Bath. All of, all of the reading that I, that I did behind these 12 lines is the idea that photographs were used in the study of mental illness. And I first read about that in the the Female Melody. There's some really famous photographs by Charcot. The photographs of women who were identified as hysterics. And there was a type of hysteric called the Ophelia. And that's she, she had a graceful and alluring way. And I was interested also in the, the drowning, you know, the, 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 there's a theme of water going through the book, the, 
the the way that witches or you know people accused of witches were swum I think they used to call it dunked in the water yeah dunked in that there's a kind of cleansing or that element but water was often used as a cure you know there was there, there were things like the Neptune's girdle where there was a I don't know, a length of fabric and it was a certain temperature and you'd wrap it around your womb. And it was called Neptune's Girdle to calm your womb right down. (laughs) It's amazing the amount of thought that's got into this by gentlemen. It's very practical. What to do about these difficult wombs. I know, I know. You know, it makes complete sense, doesn't it? So there's a little quote for this poem, which is from a system of medicine in 1886. And it goes... Hysteric paroxysms do not occur when the patient is alone. There is something artistic in the mode of approach. The hysteric patient gathers her robe about her and falls gracefully. So this is Wonder Camel with Ophelia and Hospital Bath. She fancies that the camera is the eye of heaven, so each performance is measured by this accord. The hooded doctor-priest must be the mind of God directing his machinery, ravening for light. Lilies from the river wild the metal bath. She is a vessel inside a vessel, and both their bloods are cooling. I think that that last image is the, you know, the painting, um, Ophelia. I think the model that that he used, she did pose in a, a metal bath while he painted her and um, I think she died quite soon after that but probably that wouldn't have helped. I like the way you described before you know this 12 lines of poem and the, the amount of research sort of that it sits on top I of know. And, and the amount you've packed into it there. As we've mentioned earlier you do include quite a lot of actual stories here of actual women who were incarcerated in asylums mm. actually it's one particular asylum isn't it did you did you go to the records of this place and you you dug up these actual stories yeah that's right it's the um the uh, in the norfolk record office there are all kinds of sources like this so yeah this is the st andrew's asylum records and you can when such things are possible again you you can request that they bring out these massive books for you and then you can actually spend the whole day they had photographs as well. They had photographs of when people came into the asylum and photographs when they left. And you could see how massively distressed a lot of them looked. And they, they put in their, their weight, their occupation. And then there were photographs when they left. Often they would be sitting upright and wearing a hat. So that means that they must have been cured. You know, often it was to do with the mm. appearance. They looked orderly and neat. They, yeah, absolutely. I thought your poem Housewife Psychosis was key, really, because this idea of women undergoing kind of enforced domesticity or even yeah. slavery, you know, and, and women who weren't able to cope with unreliable men or painful periods were candidates for the asylum. Yeah, absolutely. All the time when I was writing about these women, I was thinking how this kind of life would affect me. So in the periods of time when I was going backwards and forwards to the the record office, it was just really odd. I I just felt the women calling me as I was walking towards it. It was really, really strange. Because you you see the photographs, so you know what they look like. Mm. Yeah, as I say, I just put myself in, in their position and who I would be. Born to the class that... I am, so I was working class, council estate, Luton. I'd have gone into some kind of domestic service. So, you know, I wouldn't be the me, you know, I wouldn't be the person who, you know, writes poems or the person who makes artwork. One of the things that I was struck by was the occupation. So I've written a list poem of the occupations that was put in for these women and how they were described. So they were always described by who the main male person was in their life or what their job was. And I just think, as a list, this just says so much. Yes, absolutely. Here goes the poem. Okay, so it's Female Casebook 6, St Andrew's Asylum, 1898. Occupation. Needlewoman, cook, laundress, housekeeper, parlourmaid, Domestic servant, parlourmaid, domestic servant, wife of carpenter, wife of labourer, wife of farm labourer, charwoman, domestic servant, wife of blacksmith, mother's help, wife of tailor, 
married, farmer's widow, farmer's daughter, bricklayer's daughter, wife of shepherd, wife of coachman, wife of boatman, housemaid, prostitute, nun. I like the way that married is a sort of separate category. Never mind all the other wives. It just says so much about how women weren't women in their own right. Yeah. yeah. And that last word, the last word is none, as in N-O-N-E, because someone said it, thought it was none once. Oh, none, I see, as yes. In, it wasn't a deliberate, yeah, it wasn't a deliberate <laughs> pun. Shall I read the poem that you mentioned, the housewife psychosis poem? Oh, yes, do. So the poem is Housewife Psychosis, The Dreams of Katharina Bauer. So Katharina Bauer is the mother of Dora, whose real name was Ida Bauer, subject of Freud's fragment of an analysis in a case of hysteria. And Freud dismissed Katharina as an uncultivated and foolish woman who fell victim to housewife psychosis when confined as many women were to the domestic sphere. I think I'd have had a touch of housewife psychosis. Anyway, so, so this is a, a, a short sequence. Housewife psychosis, the dreams of Katharina Bauer. In the dream, I am shut in a bright, clean room where a neat square window holds a Danube like a thought, attempting to part for the Black Sea. But the will of the window is stronger. I write this in my notebook, slice out the page, lay it down in the grate, then strike it with a match. In the second dream, the house burns with electric light. A gilt wood angel spreads its wings above the roof and stares down on my dull crown with fervent incivility. A mound of ashes in a morning room corner puts on my father's coat. I take up my broom, sweep and sweep until my hands are blistered raw. In the third dream, I am shining the silver of every smoke-tainted coffee house in Vienna. Spoons queue up, clever schoolboys on the first day of term. I polish their faces. All of the girl children are folded lace parasols, packed up in a casket at the back of the nursery. I arrive at the station in my last dream to find the whole continent darkened by smog. No one was waiting and none approached me. I saw my outline sketched by a careless hand. I think I read once that Freud called female sexuality a dark continent so something you didn't want to go into very much so it shows how much he knew about it I think Freud's got a lot to answer for hasn't he oh god yeah yeah absolutely so we've managed to get all the kind of witchery into here as well haven't we the sort of the water the river the broom and the the striking of the match the the burning and the uh, the idea of um spells and ashes uh, oh yeah, and the, smog, and the smog at the end. Yeah, it's all dark, neck. very dark. <laughs> <laughs> and then these, and then these children in the fold, packed up in a casket at the back of the nursery. Yeah. Again, I got these visions of you said about the well, the wonder camera. And in mm. fact, you're right. In some of these stately homes, there is a nursery that's mm-hmm. been laid out supposedly as it was, although I'm sure it was never as untidy as that with all the toys everywhere. Yeah, you yeah. sort of look at these toys one by one, and you think. Oh, did you really let a toddler play with that yeah, I know. Me- metal arm thing or, or you know, that face on that doll? Oh, no. <laughs> Thank you for reading that. Okay. Now, of course, I think a lot of listeners will know you as the editor of Ink, Sweat and Tears mm-hmm. online. Poet, how long has that been going now? Oh, well, I've been involved in it for about 11 years, I think. Really? Is, yeah, I know. It's scary how time and before that it was set up by charles christian who um he writes short stories he does lots of other things and he he set that up he was doing a, a diploma course that i used to teach on and um at the end of it he, he set up a, a, a web scene and i don't think there were many web scenes around then he's been going for about 15 years or something yeah, yeah. so yeah publishing something new every day and because it's an it's an online thing 
we can do all kinds of things, you know, word and image and we're just doing some, we now have the technology to easily kind of put film poems and, you know, lots of different, um, different media up. You've helped me with your opinions and advice in my little book about how to get published yeah. in Merchant Magazine. So, <laughs> so I know you, you have all the, all the same kind of grief that other magazine editors get from time to time in terms of, well, various things. People not following the submissions guidelines, I think, is probably the number one thing that comes up again <laughs> and again. But I think people don't realise that you get hundreds of submissions if, and if nobody followed the guidelines. I know it seems, you know, it's a bit of a faff, really. Oh, really? Have we got to read all of that? Oh, it's a massive list. Really? <laughs> but, you know, there's just one of me. <laughs> Most people who are editors, you know, they have lots of jobs because, you know, we have to have this portfolio. Thing. I think most people who are writers or artists have have lots of jobs. And you've mentioned that you that you do needle felting. Needle felting. That's animals <laughs> and things. And, I mean, yeah. it's just a whole new thing. Or have you always done a lot of different creative activities sort of in parallel? Well, I went to art school originally. And before I started writing, you know, when I was at school, I did art. And I was always being mm. good at drawing and all that kind of stuff. And and then it was at Norwich Art School. Like George Surtees was our poetry tutor. And he, he said, oh, yeah, you're a poet. I think, well, really? Oh, that, that, that's news. <laughs> George, he anointed you. <laughs> he really did. Because I, I hadn't, I come from the kind of background where poetry wasn't a thing. I found as soon as I started writing, I found it, I wouldn't say easier, but, you know, it came to me a, a lot quicker than the artwork that I was trying to do at that time. Oh. And at that time, I, I used to want to do theatre design. But actually, that's a bit complicated, isn't it? Because you can't just be a theatre design. You have to be involved with lots of people. First of all, you need a play. But I like the idea of of making a little environment where things happen in. And actually, I can do that with poems, except that it doesn't, you know, doesn't take up as much space and, and it doesn't cost any money, really. (laughs) (laughs) And you can keep a whole poem in your head. Um, So, yeah, that's why I started writing. But then I went back to making things again, making collages and assemblages. So ready-made things. So I make word and image collages. So taking words from various sources and putting together to, to make something new, make a new narrative. Are you an Instagram poet? A little bit. I think you can get away with lots of, things and call yourself an insta poet yeah i do sometimes tack things as um as insta poetry i mean i love instagram as a medium because i'm quite a visual person and yeah, it's just yeah. a nice format it's a good kind of scrapbooky thing it's a present day version of having a wonder camera isn't it i suppose absolutely i forgot to mention when we were talking about wonder cameras earlier the the anatomical venus itself is a um, a wonder camera because it was this it was this sculpture of a of a woman for male doctors to learn from so you could actually you know if, oh, if, yes. if you if you google anatomical venus you will see these beautiful kind of sex and death representations of, of women that uh you know often they would have human hair as well and they're, they're made in wax which is looks like human skin so yes. they're laying all kind of sprawled out like some alluring sleeping beauty except you can see their innards and you can take them out you know you can take you can take the womb out you can take the fetus out of the womb yes. you know so that that's a, a um a locked cabinet as well that's easily unlocked with all the male doctors you've got your poem dissecting venus haven't you where you go into the basically dissecting a a, a woman to discover what the hell's going on in her body oh yes yeah and the little venus i suppose oh yeah the little venus maybe we'd read little would you read the little venus because i think that's um, i would do this one i i sort of read and had to read it again but didn't want to read it again do you know what i mean it's just like ew i don't want to read it again but i'm gonna have to (laughs) (laughs) okay i i shall read this i'm not used to reading this one i think this is the first time Ah. i've read it out loud to anyone so This is the little Venus. Gentlemen, the Venerina is a dissectable young woman presented voluptuously in her final moments. 
She has been cast for your instruction. See, her organs are dislocated layer by layer. The heart was her undoing. Observe the walls, too slight to sustain her through her twentieth year. Yet how charming the rope of pearls at her throat. The throat itself is a repository for kisses. Now scrutinise the sleeping fetus in the womb. Cradle it so you might feel a waxen effigy of life. Ugh, there's that horrible sexualization. Yeah, it is, isn't it, actually? <laughs> but very clever, very clever. But cold. I love this cold, creepy kind of voice mm. talking here. And you can picture all these uh, men crowding around and um, getting getting a kick out of looking at this yeah, thing. Yeah, imagine maybe oh. a little drool in the corner of their mouths or something oh, as well as they're doing. Yeah, it's really creepy, isn't it? So tell me, are you working on any, any uh, new poetry at the moment? A new collection maybe or yeah. some new ideas, new projects or anything? Or... Well, there's a couple of things. Something I've made a start on called The End of the Peer Show. I had um, a chat book published by Sir Vision called Maps of the Abandoned City and that was published in 2019. And it was about a city that people had built up and then had to leave so I, st- I was making a start on thinking of more poems of this and how I could build it up to a collection from a chapbook length and then it actually started happening we had the actual apocalypse so people were abandoning the cities there was nobody in shops yeah so I've stepped away from that idea a little bit although it's still there so there's that which I'll probably come back to there is also i'm at the moment writing some what i'm calling resistance spells so spells to counter violence against women when i was writing the venus poems i realized obviously you can't cover all of the stuff that i was trying to cover in 60 Mm. pages of poems or however long that is there so i feel that there's some plenty of unfinished business there so i'm looking at those themes i'm looking at the history of medicine and how women's health has been overlooked. Even in modern medical studies, women are not considered the norm. Yes, yes. So I'm thinking in terms of that as well. Interesting. I'll see what happens when I do the research. Yes. Like you say, research can take you in another direction or not. Absolutely. This has been really fascinating. Thank you. And a lot of fun as well in a kind of dark way. (laughs) (laughs) so thank you for for taking part it's been really great it's been a pleasure so when i was listening to that this phrase popped into my mind a history of gaslighting in a way (laughs) her poems kind of collect those moments when men have made women feel weird just for being women. Yeah. And in fact, she does say, doesn't she, that that this collection came out of The Bluebeard, her previous book, mm. and that partly from the idea that she felt she had been living with a with a bluebeard yeah. in a previous relationship. So I found Helen's investigations into, you know, how women being women has been treated with suspicion and superstition and pathologized and you know from witchcraft to to freud and beyond i think it's a really kind of important area to address her um, researches have proved to be really sort of fertile in terms of creating poetry it seemed to me yeah yeah i agree and i think as she said towards the end she feels like she's only really touched the the seam of material there that that she wants to write about and explore. And clearly, as you say, through her research, she's uncovered a a huge wealth of material. I mean, some of the things she was telling me, I sort of vaguely felt that I knew about how people were, women were treated for uh, if they had black cats or didn't have husbands, you know, they ended up being accused of witchcraft. But there was a lot of detail in there that I wasn't aware of. And and it's quite fascinating in in a dark, rather macabre sort of way you know the the anatomical venus and yeah i loved all that that they're they're rather bizarre 
object. There's something winsome about them, and yet they've got all their guts, you know, <laughs> that you can pull apart and reassemble. And oh, so on. and a real kind of Jack the Ripper kind of, um, and and the yeah. idea and the poppets. I was surprised, you know, that I I hadn't come across the word poppet in that meaning. You know, I've always mm. just thought poppet is some kind of little term of endearment for a little child. That's or what something. I thought. Yeah. <laughs> The research that sort of yielded up poems almost straight away, like that's almost like a found poem, that description of women's occupations. Yeah, know, she yeah. didn't really had to. It, it was her selection of it, her curation of her research is quite inspiring. And that was a fully formed poem, wasn't it? Yeah, Just, yeah. I liked the look of it on the page as well. This thin list with a lot of space around it. Wonder camera. That was a, a word I. I learnt as well. I, I'd heard of a cabinet of curiosities. I didn't know it was called that. Mm, mm. And that poem about Ophelia and the hospital bath, I, I really liked that idea. It was making me think of that picture by Millet. Yes, indeed. And Helen did mention the fact that the model that Millet had used for that painting did in fact die soon after from you yeah. know, from exposure, lying in that Sitting bath, in a bath. <laughs> freezing cold for goodness knows how long. She's talking about a cabinet of curiosities and it was a precursor to museums and assembling lots of objects. In a sense, a poetry collection is something that's an assembled collection of things. And in a way, because what she's writing about is so kind of historically grounded and so on, you begin to wonder about the person that's got the cabinet, you know, the poet, and what Helen's like, you know, why has she chosen to have a little cabinet full of these grotesque uh, things, you know. <laughs> um, well, certainly the, the Wunderkammer poems, there's quite a mm. few of them, and they have titles which are themselves little Wunderkammer. For example, Wunderkammer with Homestead and Aeolian Harp. Wunderkammer with Black Coffee and Ghost Moth. Ooh. Yes, yeah, so they're intriguing. And something that Helen's very modest about, I think, is her artwork. I mm. mean, she said she's a trained artist. The fact that she creates her own book covers, and I'll be posting a copy of this book cover of The Anatomical Venus yeah. on the website. Yeah, I, I really respond to people that inhabit the kind of imaginative space their their poems live in, you know, to the point that they're sort of drawing and kind of exploring in other ways as well, this this kind of imaginative territory they've, they've carved out for themselves. Yeah. And I think also a lot of people know Helen's name, at least, from Ink, Ink Sweat, Sweat and Tears. And, tears yeah. and, and she said at one point, actually, it's really nice to be asked about my own poetry because people don't either don't know or forget that, you know, and she's written several books of poems, you know, published by Bloodaxe. She's a fine yeah. poet. And yet people say, oh, yeah, Helen Ivory, isn't she Ink, Sweat and Tears? You know, so it's nice to to sort of let a bit of air into that side mm. of her of her practice. Right, Robin, I happen to know you've been reading Thomas Tranströmer. <laughs> I have. Well done for saying his name. I thought you were going to leave that to me. <laughs> it just it makes you pull a strange face when you say it, though, for some reason. <laughs> I expect many of our listeners know Thomas Tranströmer. But those who don't, I'll, I'll tell you, he was a Swedish poet. He died in 2015 and a fine, a fine poet. He won the, the Nobel Prize for Literature in 2011. And apparently the, the citation was because through his condensed translucent images, he gives us fresh access to reality. Mm. Yeah, actually, a couple of episodes ago, we were speaking to Yang Lian, and uh, we read a translation of a poem he wrote about Transtroma. He was a friend of his as well. So, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember He's now, come yes. up in our pod already. Transtroma, he worked as a psychologist with juvenile offenders for quite a bit of his life. And the book I've been reading is, it's a selected called The Half-Finished Heaven in Penguin Modern Classics. And it's been translated by... Robert Bly. And Robert Bly was a long-time collaborator. And in fact, the selection here also includes extracts from some letters from the poet to... Well, Robert Bly was a poet as well. Letters between them, shall we say. The poetry, I, I found it really intriguing. He 
his poems, they seem to portray these quite dark, you know, Nordic noir landscapes, but, but they're everyday landscapes. He seems to perceive much more than most of us would images pushing through wallpaper or uh, smells coming up through the fence boards. And from a poem called Street Crossing, it goes far under the traffic, deep in earth. The unborn forest waits still for a thousand years. Mm. These kind of s- surreal moments, I would say, come at you. There's, there's one poem which begins with him shaving and he switches on the electric razor and the noise it makes, it grows into a roar, it grew into a helicopter and the voice, the pilots pierced the noise shouting, keep your eyes open. You're seeing this for the last time. Wow. That's, that's from a poem called yeah. The Open Window. I couldn't classify a lot of this as nature poetry because there are plenty of vehicles, cars, buses, factories, domestic interiors. In fact, it's more about spaces generally, I think, real spaces, imagined spaces, but also metaphorical spaces. So, And nature always seems to be in motion, but the things you expect to be moving are often frozen or behaving very strangely. So there's there's one poem where he describes a bus moving out of the shadow of a cold mountain and, and turning its nose towards the sun, creeping up in a roar. Hmm. And we have children standing in a silent clump by a by a bus stop. This sense of things changing very, very slowly. I like this line from a poem called Below Freezing. The light grows as gradually as our hair. <laughs> so I don't know, it, the word surreal did come to mind, but it really made me start to think what we mean by that. Surreal meaning actually more than real or a way of, perceiving what we thought was unreal and realizing it's it's real there's there's a real beauty in the poems even the more melancholy ones so poems that i would go back to again and again really really interesting mm. yeah I've, I've read um his work before he's definitely he's on my shelf and i zip dip back i love that idea about the the forest that's kind of under the uh under the town but there is that sen- unborn, sense of yeah. just kind of the force of life, if that doesn't sound too kind of up itself, that his poems actually have that sense of being full of the energy of nature. I think you're right. It's not necessarily nature poetry, but there's a kind of primal force that's really arresting. That, yeah, it's a good way of putting it. I like that, the primal force. It's The life is there. We don't see it moving and changing because I suppose we're here for just such a split second in the face of uh, the 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 world the universe etc mm. so how can we see it moving how can we see it changing shall i read a poem yeah please from this yeah, yeah. so this is in a section which is which covers three collections resonance and footprints from 1966 night vision from 1970 um oh and a collection of letters so i'm not quite sure which collection this comes from but it's called traffic The semi-trailer crawls through the fog. It is the lengthened shadow of a dragonfly larva crawling over the murky lake bottom. Headlights cross among dripping branches. You can't see the other driver's face. Light overflows through the pines. We have come, shadows, chassis, from all directions in failing light. We go in tandem after each other, past each other, sweep on in a modest roar into the open where the industries are brooding. And every year the factory buildings go down another eighth of an inch. The earth is gulping them slowly. Pores no one can identify have left a print on the glossiest artefacts dreamed up here. Pollen is determined to live in asphalt. But the horse chestnut trees loom up first melancholy, as if they intended to produce clusters of iron gloves rather than white flowers. And past them, the reception room. A fluorescent light out of order blinks on and off. Some magic door is around here. Open and look downward through the reversed periscope, down to the great mouths, the huge buried pipes where algae is growing like the beards on dead men. And the cleaner swims on in his overcoat of slime and his strokes weaker and weaker. 
He will be choked soon. And no one knows what will happen. We only know the chain breaks and grows back together all the time. Wow. That that sense of humans being kind of dwarfed by nature and the sort of the factory sinking back into the land and yeah an eighth of an inch at a time and then there's this weird peri- reverse periscope at the end and there's some poor bugger swimming around in the slime it's and it talks about algae it's all these kind of natural things that are gradually undermining and yeah that we'll all return to the slime <laughs> <laughs> i mean it should be gloomy but it's i still i'm excited by that that poem it's like wow <laughs> It makes me think of um, the photographs of, is it Pripyat, uh, near Chernobyl, this town where, you know, had to be hastily abandoned and people have gone in and taken photographs of all the buildings that have been overgrown and reclaimed by nature and you've got uh, sort of lots of animals yeah. all just roaming about there. And But that sense that, that we're just a few kind of accidents away from that happening all over again. And actually, that's quite nice, the idea that nature could actually triumph again. Yeah, yeah. So um, what's been on your bedside reading lately, well, Peter? Yeah, well, it's you know how we've all got that kind of great skyscraper of books that we've yet to read. Yes. And um, <laughs> sort of nearing the top of that was this collection by Robert Hamburger called Blue Wallpaper. Ah, yes. And I actually bought this about a year and a half ago. Robert was uh, doing a reading and I bought it from him then. I'm ashamed to say I haven't opened it until like two days ago. And I'm so pleased I did because he's one of those poets that that there's a quietness about it, but it's consistently moving. The phrase that that came to my mind was that the poems are all happy in their own skin somehow. They exist. They're not kind of making any overt claims on your attention in a showy or kind of pyrotechnic way, but they're just perfectly do the job and I find that incredibly satisfying there's something just beautiful about a poem that's just it's almost like a little living thing on its own and once you sort of enter its world it's it's just brilliant Hmm. there's lots of sonnets and there's kind of elegiac poems for his mother and also a, a childhood friend it just immediately connected with me emotionally the poems are deceptively easy to read you can speed through the collection I've, I've read it twice you know in the space of two days now but you know it's so well worth uh, going back I, i'll mm. read one um mm. which is called coming home a late sun slowly swerves behind the flats foxes skulk between dustbins this playground empties like a name called over and over to come home Windows, paint-lit squares against the black, one beside another, each dwindling block docked like an ocean liner for the dark. That young man's waiting again when you enter the estate at night, stops you politely with the thinnest echo of a smile, says, Don't think I'll wait till Saturday to slit your throat. He's gone now scared you years ago no one shouts your name to come back home climb the stairs that sandpaper scrape your shoes make with each step tattoos your skin reach number 45 again third story red door but the keys are lost your pockets empty no one answers or whoever answers Never heard of anyone who looks like you. Hmm. So just, yeah, lovely. And that sense of being able to return in some way to the past or the same kind of yeah, estate, yeah. perhaps, but nobody knows you there, you know. Yeah, and, and so many so many of the details are what he remembers, you know, his footsteps on the stairs and the the, the bully boys of the estate, uh, yeah. the colour of the door, and, and yet actually you kind of don't exist there anymore now. yeah. Yes, lovely. I've got this collection. I'm a bit of a Robert Hamburger fan, I must admit. Mm. He's a, a lovely man and very modest and yeah. 
I think he's a fine poet. But like you say, his work, I like that expression, it's happy in its skin. He's not got anything to mm. prove. Yeah, in that, in that that's sense. what I mean. He's got a new book coming out actually very soon. Yeah, it's prose, isn't it? It's to do with John Clare. He, he walked in his footsteps, I think. It's called A Length of Road. Oh, yes, exactly. Thank yeah. you. Is, would, I think it's, it's creative nonfiction, I think you'd call it. Yeah. Uh, which I, th- I think will be really interesting. Yeah, worth seeking out. Yeah, one of the words that uh, leapt out at me from the, the back of the book jacket was the word humane. Hmm. There's just something really lovely about being in his company somehow that, you know, it makes you feel like a better person after you've read it. Oh, that's <laughs> and, nice. Uh, yeah, it's nice. You know, that's not something you always get from poetry. Uh, uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm going to read more of his back catalogue. Yeah, great book. So Robert Hamburger's Blue Wallpaper is from The Waterloo Press. It was published in 2019. So here's an interesting thing. Somebody tweeted the other day. This is what she said. Two years, five months and seven days later, I have heard back. They read my poems with interest, but unfortunately cannot find a place for them at this time. Oh, my God. So uh, that's interesting. So that had 550 likes and (laughs) 19 retweets and quite a few comments in the sense of uh, at this time seems to be the the part of the phrase everyone jumped on like what do they mean yeah. at this time at, you know, two and a half years later well if you'd have read them two and a half years ago that might have been the right time and clearly a kind of a form response mm. rather than anything personal you, you know you think perhaps even sorry for the delay or something <laughs> i don't know what is this acceptable well why <laughs> you you wonder why they bother because it's just kind of because it must be it's like the stages of grief isn't it when you send something mm. out like that never, you know that you're in denial and then raging about it and you end and you come to a cold acceptance that it's just yeah. gone west somehow yeah 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 you think so it's almost drawing attention to it by sending out the reply after all this time isn't it <laughs> two and a half years later <laughs> you're still <laughs> we're still rejecting you just to let you know <laughs> Anyway, no, I think that that's that's quite funny. Unless it had been in the bottom of some in tray, and whoever responded in the office, you know, didn't didn't look at the dates and just did a whole bunch together. And this was one of them. I suppose that's that's possible, isn't it? Yeah. The thorny issue of admin uh, among magazines, as, mm. as we all know, magazines are run for love, not money, often by individuals. And yet, some of those magazines, including the ones run by individuals, are able to somehow process. There are thousands and thousands of submissions. Humanely, yeah. Humanely is is wonderfully <laughs> desirable. Not always possible, but to even do them in a timely fashion is something, mm. isn't it? I'm not going to be rude about magazine editors per se. No. I'm, I'm a friend to mag. We are both friends to magazine editors. We like them. They do great work. But- I don't have any terrible stories like that, I don't think. Do you? Do you anything like that? Well, I've had, yeah, sent things out which you just simply never heard from again. I think that's a, a magazine can go out of uh, publications. Or, yeah. I mean, I've had things accepted by magazines that have then disappeared, which is a bit galling. Oh, no. I mean, it's such a thankless task, though, isn't it, being a, yeah. a, an editor? You, it is. It is. You know, and we expect such unimpeachable behaviour from editors. And we usually get it, don't yeah. we, to be fair? Yeah. It's that time of the year where I'm thinking about sending out poems again, so uh, <laughs> just sending you love, editors. <laughs> 